I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this, uh, the fourth event in our uh, series this year, which, uh, for which I want to congratulate Kristen Bazayo, the co-director of Digital Dystopias, um, our speaker series this year. Um, it's my pleasure this evening to welcome Ben Weinstein to the stage. Um, he, in turn, will introduce our speaker. Jepson student Ben Weinstein is a senior. Uh, he's double majoring in physics and leadership studies. If you can imagine that combination, he's doing it. Uh, he grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, and he currently serves as the captain of the university's uh, men's ultimate frisbee team. <laughs> Ben uh, and I were just speaking about senioritis. I mentioned that he's a senior. Um, he's, he knows now that he's moving to Madison, Wisconsin after graduation, where he has already accepted a position uh, with Epic Systems, yes, uh, an international healthcare software company. Uh, please welcome uh, Ben to the stage. Hello. So I've caught a little something in the last few days, so please apologize in advance. Um, so our speaker tonight uh, has spent the last two decades working in community technology and economic justice movements. Uh, Dr. Virginia Eubanks is an associate professor of political science at University at Albany, uh, State University of New York. Her most recent book, Automating Inequality, How High-Tech Tools Profile, Police, and Punish the Poor, has been called riveting by the New York Times and downright scary by author and social activist Naomi Klein. Dr. Eubanks' writing about technology and social justice has appeared in Scientific American, The, Na the, National, sorry, the Nation, Harper's, and Wired. She is co-founder of the Popular Technology Workshops, where people work to make science and technology serve social justice. In 2016 and 2017, she served as a fellow at New America, a think tank that addresses challenges caused by rapid technology and social change. Professor Eubanks is also author of Digital Dead End, Fighting for Social Justice in the Information Age, and co-editor with Aletha Jones of Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement, bu movement Building with Barbara Smith. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Virginia Eubanks. Hi, good evening, can you hear me? All right, so we're here for a minute together. Um, and so at uh, some points I will test your energy level. Um, I, I wanna start by saying thank you for coming out. I know rain is a really big weather event in Richmond. Um, uh, speaking as somebody uh, whose hometown got four and a half feet of snow the day after Thanksgiving, I have no tolerance for you thinking that rain is weather. <laughs> But I'm going to let it go tonight um, because we're going to have a really intense conversation, and I, you know, I need you to be in it. 
Um, so uh, throughout uh, the conversation, I'll, um, I'll, I'll pause every once in a while, I'll check how you're doing on energy, I'll tell you to give me twinkle fingers, all that means is like, if you're good, it's up here. Uh, that's like, wow, tell me more. If you're here, that's like, okay, lady, like, we're, I have other things to do. Um, and down here is like, just please shut up and go home. Um, any of those is fine. I'm from New York, I have really good emotional boundaries. Um, you can straight up tell me in my face to go home, and I'm like, yeah, maybe. Um, so um, I'll check in every now and again and see how you're doing. Um, I just want to thank you so much for being here. I want to um, extend special gratitude to Shannon Best um, and the whole Jepson committee for the invitation and for the hard, often invisible work it takes to pull a conversation like this together. Um, so thank you so much. Shannon's disappeared, but I'm making eye contact with you um, wherever you are. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm here to talk about what I call in um, automating inequality the um, the digital poorhouse. And the digital poorhouse uh, is an invisible institution that's made up of decision-making algorithms, automated eligibility processes, and statistical models in our nation's social service programs. And so I want to talk today about how the rise of the digital poorhouse um, responds to and recreates a narrative of austerity. The idea that we don't have enough for everyone and we have to make really hard decisions between or among people who deserve to access their basic human rights and people who may have to wait. So, so we often like to talk about our sort of new technology tools as disruptors, um, especially in the Bay Area, um, but pretty much everywhere. Um, the digital tools we find in public assistance are really very much more evolution than revolution. And their roots go really, really far back into our history, um, at least as far back as, um, uh, as, the, or as the, well, in the book, I take it back to 1819. In reality, it goes back further than the 1600s. And this is the moment where I always thank my editor, um, Elizabeth Discard at St. Martin's Press, because originally the first chapter of <laughs> this popularly oriented book was a 90 plus page um, social history of poverty policy in the United States. And she pretty much just got on the phone crying and was like, please don't do that to them, Virginia, please. Um, so we got it down to this svelte little 26 page history of 400 years of poverty policy in the United States. Um, and I'm just going to talk about one moment in that history um, tonight. I'm going to talk about 1819, which is a moment where there was um, huge economic dislocation in the United States, a series of really intense recessions leading to a, a, a widespread depression in 1819, and also leading to some really intense social activism by poor and working class people. And economic in the uh, elites in the United States responded, as they often do, to economically based social unrest um, by commissioning a bunch of studies. Ah, some laughs. So here's the thing. That's a joke. <laughs> um, when I speak to academic audiences, they often don't understand that it's a joke, um, and nobody laughs. Um, when I speak to community audiences, everybody just like falls out of their chair. You guys were like in the middle, so it makes me wonder who's in the room. Um, so uh, usually in academic talks, at that point, I pause and ask people to think about why they didn't think that was funny. 
Um, so economic elites at the time commissioned all these studies. Basically, the studies that they um, were investigating asked a simple question. Like, is the real problem with sort of the social order right now, is the problem poverty? The fact that people lack access to their basic needs? Or is the problem what they called at the time pauperism, which meant dependence on public benefits? Does anyone want to guess what the, these studies came back, what the results of the studies were? Was the problem poverty or pauperism? Pauperism, what a smart crowd. That's exactly what they said. Um, and so they, at the time, came up with a brand new technology to deal with the scourge of dependence on public benefits. Um, and that was um, known as the county poorhouse. So the poorhouse was a brick and mortar actual institution um, where folks who asked for public aid were required to basically um, in, in, uh, enter in order, as, um, in order to receive any kind of aid. Um, and this was not a small decision. So this was 1819, so not everyone had these rights, and that's important to acknowledge. But if you had the right to vote or hold office, you had to give up that right in order to enter the poorhouse. Um, you weren't allowed to marry when you were in the poorhouse. Um, often families, parents were separated from their children because it was understood at the time that you could cure poverty by um, sort of giving poor children better access to sort of better moral models. Um, their, their social betters, um, professional middle class or, or wealthy families. By contact, they generally mean, meant sort of binding children out as apprentices or um, sending them to work as free agricultural labor or domestic labor um, for wealthy families. And finally, the death rates in some of these institutions um, reached as high as 30% annually, meaning that a roughly a third of people who entered poorhouses every year died. So this was not a minor choice to enter the poorhouse. Um, and just so you know that I like to do my local research, um, and also to bring the story to Richmond, um, this is a drawing of the 1805 Richard, uh, Richmond Almshouse and Hospital. Um, it was constructed sort of very carefully just over the northern line um, of the original city where the today's Highway 64 and 95 meet. Um, and thanks, by the way, to um, Gibson and Richard Warsham um, for their, and their blog, Urban Scale Richmond, for much of the information that follows. Um, at the time of its construction, the 1805 Richmond um, Almshouse and Hospital was the third largest building in the city after the Capitol and the State Penitentiary. Yeah. Yeah, that, I didn't think of that as a joke, but yeah, that's, um, that's funny too. Um, funny sad, uh, I guess. Um, it was replaced in 1861 by the much larger Second Richmond Almhouse, um, which still stands as the Shaco Hill Apartments at 210 Hospital Street, just across the street from the north end of the cemetery. Um, so the poorhouse was likely integrated for its first five decades until the Civil War when the old city hospital on 4th Street, which you can see here on the sort of right-hand side of the screen, was converted to the city's first African-American almshouse. Um, in 1908, a two-story brick building, which still exists and is known as the West Building of that um, apartment complex, was built next to the main building to maintain that segregation, though many rural Virginia almshouses remained integrated until the state pressured them to segregate in the 1920s. So by the turn of the century, um, there were 108 county and city almshouses in um, Virginia. 
Um, in the year 1910, uh, 1,588 people lived at the Richmond Poorhouse. They're about evenly split between men and women, um, and 833, or 52% of them, were black. Anyone want to guess how long it was open? This is it today. This is the building today. Anyone want to guess when uh, Richmond's almshouse closed? 1920, 1960s. Anyone want to go up from there? 1980. It was still open as an almshouse in 1980. Um, this is something I just learned today. It's actually the second longest lasting one I've ever found. The other one is in a, a very tiny island off the coast of Maine um, called Vinyl Haven. Um, so uh, I use this metaphor uh, of the digital poorhouse to do some really specific work in the book. And that is to illustrate what I think of as the deep social programming of today's big data and digital tools in social services. Because at their heart is this decision we made all the way back in 1819 that what public service programs should do is act as moral thermometers, separating the deserving from the undeserving, diverting the able from seeking any kind of help, um, and enforcing work, rather than acting as a universal floor under us all. Okay, so that's our history. But I don't just want to talk about history. Um, so I want us to talk to together today about this political moment, like why these specific tools have become popular at this specific time. And I think that high-tech tools for establishing eligibility, for predicting behavior, for measuring effectiveness of, of programs that deal with poor and working class families have risen to prominence now for three reasons. And I'm going to talk about two of them in depth and one of them um, a, a little bit more briefly um, today. The first is I think that they recreate and rationalize a politics of austerity. Like I said before, this idea that there's not enough for everyone and we have to make um, difficult decisions among who is able to meet their basic human needs and who isn't. Um, second, they purport to address bias um, in decision making, but they really just move or hide it. And third, they can create empathy overrides that ease the emotional burden of making increasingly inhumanly difficult decisions about um, America's 43 million poor um, and working class people. So I, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna talk about sort of each of those points in turn, um, but what I'd like to um, sort of put in the front of our conversation is um, the dozens and dozens of poor and working class families who spoke to me um, when I was reporting this book. Um, their voices are rarely heard in conversations about technology and social justice, even when the conversations have to do with public programs specifically. It's really, I think, incredibly important um, to, to put their voices in the room because there's no way I could have possibly written this book without the incredible courage it takes to um, make yourself vulnerable um, by sharing your true story under your real name um, when you're in a, a system that makes you um, as vulnerable as public assistance does uh, in the United States, right? So people were risking food, they were risking access to medical care, they were risking care of their children. Um, they risked a lot to make this book happen. Um, and so I wanna make sure um, that we always return to their sort of human stories when we're talking about um, technology and social justice. So for example, I dedicate the book to Sophie Stipes, 
um, who was a severely disabled little girl um, who I met uh, the first year of reporting on this book. Um, when Sophie was six, she received a letter that explained that she'd be losing her Medicaid because she had, quote, failed to cooperate in establishing eligibility for the program. So this happened just as she was gaining weight, sort of on par with her age for the first time, thanks to a life-saving feeding tube, sort of a gastrointestinal feeding tube that had recently um, been implanted, um, and she was learning to walk for the first time. So the Stipes family was caught up in an attempt to automate and modernize all of the eligibility processes for the welfare programs of the state of Indiana. So in 2006, then Governor Mitch Daniels signed what was eventually a $1.34 billion contract with a consortium of high-tech companies including IBM and ACS to create a system that replaced the hands-on um, work of local caseworkers with online applications and regional call centers. Um, what that looked like in practice from the point of view of caseworkers was that in the past they had been responsible for and responsive to what was known as a caseload, which is just a group of families that they often developed relationships with over time, who they were um, uh, able to be responsive to if something went wrong, um, and, and who's, who could draw on their sort of local knowledge of the county where they lived. Um, so, for example, before the modernization, a caseworker dealing with somebody who looks like they were not going to be eligible for a program like food stamps or SNAP um, could say, like, oh, hey, it looks like you're not going to be eligible, but there's a food pantry in your town. It's open on Tuesday nights, right? Like, it's an alternative for you. From the point of view of recipients, oh, uh, so they moved from what was known as a case-based system, this group of families, to what was known as a task-based system, meaning that rather than have a caseload, you just responded to the next task that was assigned to you through a, um, a computerized workflow management system. And because people were put into regional call centers, um, it meant you were responding to calls from anywhere around the state. So folks weren't able to develop sort of relationships with people over time, understand their context, or use any of their sort of local knowledge in their decision making. So from the point of view of clients, it felt like the system was set up um, that, so that you were just bound to fail. Um, if anything went wrong, if you missed an uh, like a signature on page 34 of a 60-page application, um, if you uh, photocopied your driver's license and then faxed it to the document center where they scanned it into the system, anyone want to guess what that looked like? black box on white sheet, right? Um, if, if it was unreadable, um, if you got bad advice from the many, many, many new case, um, not really caseworkers anymore, uh, call center operators who um, were brought in to staff the regional call centers, um, any one of those things could mean that you were denied um, for this sort of catch-all reason, failure to, um, failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. And the failure to cooperate notices, when you receive them, told you there was a mistake with your application, but didn't say what it was. So um, some of the state's most vulnerable families um, were put in the position of trying to figure out within 10, often 10 to 13 days, what had gone wrong with their application and fix it or face being denied benefits um, that you were already getting or denied benefits you had newly um, applied for. Um, so this created enormous hardship for Indiana families. Um, uh, Kim Stipes, Sophie's mom, told me, um, during that time my mind was muddled because it was so stressful. 
all my focus was getting Sophie back on that Medicaid and then crying afterwards because everyone was calling us white trash, moochers. It was like being sucked up into this vacuum of nothingness. Um, and I also want to share the story of Omega Young, who's another person who lost her benefits um, during this period. So in the fall of 2008, Omega Young of Evansville missed an appointment to recertify for Medicaid because she was in the hospital suffering from terminal cancer. The cancer that began in her ovaries had spread to her kidneys, breast, and liver. Her chemotherapy left her weak and emaciated. Young, a round-faced, umber-skinned mother of two grown sons, struggled to meet the new system's requirements. She called her county help center to tell them that she couldn't make this phone um, recertification appointment because she was um, hospitalized, but her medical benefits were still cut off for failure to cooperate in establishing eligibility. Because she lost her benefits, Young was unable to afford her medications, she lost her food stamps, she struggled to pay her rent. She lost access to free transportation to medical appointments. And Omega Young died on March 1st, 2009. On the next day, on March 2nd, she won an appeal for wrongful termination and all of her benefits were restored. So that's Omega Young um, and the story of Indiana. One thing that I wanna point out about this story um, is that it was rationalized by this call to austerity, saying there, wasn't there, wasn't there weren't enough resources for everyone, um, and the state had to be more active about weeding out the ineligible um, and cracking down on um, things like missed appointments um, and other things that um, they believe established that people were um, affirmatively failing to cooperate with the process. Um, in reality, uh, the program um, created so much hardship for the people of Indiana um, that they basically sort of rose up uh, in resistance against it. Um, three years into what was supposed to be a 10-year experiment, there was this um, wave of incredible social um, organizing and activism, um, mostly um, led out of community colleges and local government offices. Um, the pushback was um, serious enough that the governor abandoned the project three years into a 10-year contract um, and walked away from the contract with IBM. Um, IBM then sued the state for breach of contract um, and in the first run through the courts actually won that not only were they um, allowed to keep the half a billion dollars they had already collected, but they were um, also awarded an extra $50 million in penalties um, because the state had broken the contract. Now that case stayed in the courts for nine years um, and recently wrapped up. Um, in the long run, the state did win um, and got back, I think, 150 of the $550 million. Um, but one of the things that I want to point out is that though people like the Stipes family and Omega Young paid um, the highest cost of this system, it also cost the state more generally. So um, all of the money that went to create, implement, and then legally defend the system um, simply could have gone to services. Um, so this idea that um, austerity requires of us um, creating these diagnostic tools um, that can shave um, the roles um, in the long run often end up costing us more money. Okay, so second point, that was my first point about um, austerity. 
Uh, my second point is about bias. And this is the second thing that designers or policymakers who are proponents of these tools will say. The first thing they tend to say is, um, are questions of efficiency, right? We don't have enough money, we have to be more efficient with it, um, and um, these tools can help us um, increase efficiency. Um, the second thing they tend to say is that there's extraordinary amounts of individual bias in decision making in public services. And they're not wrong. Um, this country has um, a really horrifying and shameful history of racial discrimination in public services, um, some of which is driven by individual um, implicit bias and, and um, irrational decision making, um, but not all of which is driven by that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so uh, I think in this case I want you to be introduced to the people first and then the system. Is that okay? Yeah? Happy? <laughs> Medium happy, want me to go home? Oh, nobody wants me to go home yet. I must not be doing my job. Um, uh, I'll just be more provocative. Um, okay, so two of the folks I met in um, Allegheny County um, where I was working, um, doing reporting around a tool called the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. Um, which is, is a predictive model that's supposed to be able to guess which children might be victims of abuse or neglect sometime in the future. Um, Allegheny County is a county where Pittsburgh is. So I met um, this uh, child's uh, protection services in, involved family, um, Angel Shepherd and Patrick Grebe, um, in Duquesne, which is a, a nearby um, sort of suburb on the edges of Pittsburgh, um, at a sort of community center where families who have been involved in the child protective services system sort of attend programs, access resources, connect with each other, do sort of peer support. Um, Angel and Patrick didn't stand out right away because their experience is so utterly average, so characteristic of the routine, mundane indignities experienced by the white working class. They've struggled with low-wage, dangerous work, poor quality public schools and predatory online education, poor health, and community violence. Um, through it all, though, Patrick and Angel have remained creative, inventive, involved parents. So Patrick, I think I call him in the book a, a Buddhist ex-biker. Um, he's just like this enormous human being. He's like got to be five feet across. Um, and um, he, yes, he's a big guy. Um, he has very like complicated, ornate facial hair. Um, and he's like Zen Buddhist calm, like just this very like deeply calm human being. And one of the things that um, Patrick and Angel are caring for two young girls, um, uh, Angel's daughter, Harriet, and Patrick's daughter's daughter, Desiree. Um, and the girls are very similar in age, um, and so they bicker a lot. Um, so one of their solutions to the girls bickering is what they call um, the get-along shirt. And the get-along shirt is one of Patrick's like enormous button-down Oxford shirts. Um, where they put both girls in the shirt, um, one arm through one armhole, one arm around the waist of the other girl, and then they button it back up. Um, and you're not allowed to leave the get-along shirt until you can get along, um, even if you have to go to the bathroom. Um, so this is the thing they say always works. Like as soon as somebody has to pee, they start getting along so they can get out of the get-along shirt. 
Um, so despite what I think is some very creative parenting, um, Angel and Patrick have racked up really a lifetime of interactions with what in Allegheny County is called CYF, Children, Youth, and Family Services, and other places it's called Child Protective Services or, or CPS. So Patrick was investigated for medical neglect in the early 2000s when he was unable to afford his daughter Tabitha's antibiotic prescription after an emergency room visit. When Harriet was five, someone phoned in a string of reports to the, um, the county's child abuse and neglect hotline. This is a, an anonymous line where community members can call their concerns about children um, in, in their neighborhoods or, or who they see um, out in public. So this anonymous tipster explained that Harriet was running around the neighborhood unsupervised, that she was down the block teasing a dog, that she wasn't being properly clothed, fed, or bathed, and that she wasn't getting needed medication. So for each call, an investigator from CYS, CYF came to the house, interviewed Harriet and Tabitha, Angel and Patrick, looked in all the cupboards and under all the beds, and requested access to the family's medical records. And then each time, finding that there was no evidence of maltreatment, they closed the case. But each of these interactions was entered into the family's case file, which is held in an integrated data warehouse, which feeds this tool, the Allegheny Family Screening Tool. So Angel and Patrick recognize that because they rely on county services of many different kinds, um, that it is likely they have a high risk score in the system because a lot of data about them has been collected. So they live in what they describe to me as a kind of constant state of low-grade terror where they're doing this sort of survival math in their heads all the time, where they're saying, should we reach out for resources for X or Y, knowing it might drive up our risk score, and that might mean if somebody calls on us again that our daughter will be investigated um, for abuse or neglect and may um, be taken out of the home and put in foster care. Um, so Angel told me, this is a quote, you feel like a prisoner. You feel trapped. It's like no matter what you do, it's not good enough for them. My daughter's now nine, and I'm still afraid that they're going to come up one day, see her out by herself, pick her up, and say, you can't have her anymore. So what you need to know about the system, about the Allegheny Family Screening Tool, is that the model is built on top of a data warehouse um, that was constructed in, um, oop, not in my notes. It may not be in my head, 1999, uh, it is still in my head, um, that as of the writing of the book held um, a billion records, more than 800 for every resident of Allegheny County. Um, so data extracts are regularly collected from adult and juvenile probation, the jails and prisons, county mental health services, the state office of income maintenance, the public schools, and other agencies that primarily serve poor and working class families. So the limits of that data, the fact that, that the billion records or 800 records for every individual um, are actually not evenly distributed uh, across every individual in Allegheny County, it really shapes what the Allegheny Family Screening Tool is able to predict. Um, it relies almost entirely on information that is collected about families who rely on county or um, state uh, resources for support with their parenting. As far as I know, every parent needs support with their parenting, right? I mean, I'm not a parent, I don't know. Do you guys know? Yeah, does everybody need support with their parenting? Yeah, everybody needs support with their parenting, that's a fair guess. Um, there might be some magic super individuals in the world, but we secretly hate them, right? <laughs> um, so, um, 
but if you're a professional middle class person in Allegheny County and you need help, say, with daycare, you're likely to hire a babysitter or a nanny or get an au pair, um, and then your data doesn't go into this data warehouse. If you're a poor and working class family in Allegheny County, um, then you're going to have to rely on county subsidized childcare, um, and your data does go in the data warehouse. If you're a professional middle class family and you're struggling with addiction or uh, mental health issues, then you likely, hopefully, will go through your employer um, provided health insurance, you'll see a private um, practitioner, and your data will not go into the data warehouse. If you're a poor and working class family in Allegheny County and you're struggling with an addiction or a mental health issue, then you have to go to the county office of drug and alcohol or you have to go to the county office of mental health and your data goes into the data warehouse. So the parents I spoke to were really concerned that this amounts to um, poverty profiling, in a similar way that we talk about racial pro profiling, um, where because data is only collected about poor and working class families, um, that means they're seen as being riskier to their children, which means that they are surveilled more often, which means their risk scores go up, which means they're surveilled more often, which means more data is collected, right? And the, and the, the loop kind of closes in what the families I spoke to called feedback loops of injustice. So for the families, for the parents, they were concerned about what in computer science is known um, as false positive problems. False positives meaning seeing harm where no harm might actually exist. Interestingly, the frontline caseworkers that I spoke to, I spent a, a, a day um, sitting with intake call screeners, who are the folks who pick up the phone when that hotline rings, either from community members or from mandated reporters. Um, and they make a really, really difficult decision, right? At that moment, they, after doing, um, after interviewing the folks who call, after looking up families' records in their extensive databases, they make this incredibly difficult decision about whether to screen a family in for a full investigation by Child, Youth, and Family Services or whether to screen them out, meaning they, they leave the data about the um, report in the system, but they don't investigate that family at that moment. So I spent a lot of time with these intake call screeners who are basically the people that this tool is supposed to um, help support their decision making. Um, and they were actually concerned about the tool for similar reasons, but the flip side of the coin. So they were concerned not about false positives so much as they were concerned about false negatives, which is not seeing harm where harm might actually be occurring. So they were really concerned that because the system had no information on professional middle class families, that there was no way it could see the kind of harm that happened, say, in geographically isolated households, um, that it was uh, that where it would be unlikely that you would get called on um, to one of these hotlines. Um, and because the data didn't exist and that harm couldn't be recognized, that there was no way that the system could predict that kind of harm. So they were really concerned that they would miss things that they might see with their own clinical expertise. Um, so that's a false negatives problem. What I find so interesting is they basically share exactly the same concerns as the parents, but for the sort of opposite, opposite reasons. Um, so one of the things that's so interesting about this tool is that the models designers and the administrators of Children, Youth, and Family Services say that part of the purpose is to root out bias in individual decision-making of those folks I just talked about, those, those, those call screeners. They're concerned that the call screeners might have implicit bias. 
um, that that implicit bias may affect who gets screened in and who doesn't get screened in for investigation. And there's good reason to be concerned about this because like pretty much every other county in the United States, Allegheny County has a huge issue with racial disproportion in their foster care population. So black and biracial um, kids are much more likely to be taken um, out of their families and put into foster care. The, the challenge though here is that the tool doesn't actually remove discretion. It just moves it. So where before the front line of the system, these call screeners, who frankly are um, the most female, uh, the most working class, um, and the most racially diverse part of the CYF workforce, their discretion is being replaced by the discretion of the people who build the models. Um, so for example, the folks who think um, that uh, it, it's not a problem that the system only um, collects information about poor and working class families and might create a discriminatory um, feedback loop. Um, so in Allegheny County, part of the problem is that the system's designers um, only think of discrimination as a property of individuals, um, of people who may hold implicitly or explicitly discriminatory beliefs about families based on race or class or other factors. Um, but of course, inequality, inequity is systemic and structural, not just um, effect of irrational individual decision making. It's built into our institutions and our systems. Um, and in fact, the, the county's own research shows that discrimination is actually not entering the system at call screening. In fact, it's entering the system at the point at which families get called on, what's called reporting. So when someone picks up the phone, a community member or a mandated reporter, to report a family uh, or to report a child um, at potential risk for abuse or neglect, they are three and a half times more likely to call on black and biracial families than they are on white families. Um, and my, one of my great concerns about this system is by limiting intake workers' discretion to see that discrimination operating, to, to, to sort of feel it out in the call, um, the system may actually limit their ability to correct for this over-reporting um, and, um, and may in fact worsen inequality um, over um, the period of time when the tool is, uh, is operating. Um, so the reality is that the problem in racial disproportion in children, youth, and family services in Allegheny County is not where the intake workers, which, which families the intake workers decide to, in, um, to investigate and which ones they decide to screen out. It's um, what the larger community thinks a safe and healthy family looks like. And the larger community thinks a safe and healthy family is white and rich. Um, and that's where the discrimination is entering the system in the most profound way. And that is not necessarily um, an issue that we can address with more precise um, uh, tools for analyzing data that the system already has. That's a cultural problem more than um, a data problem, I believe. So one of the great concerns I have about these systems um, is that at their worst, they can act as a kind of empathy override, sort of outsourcing to computers some of the most difficult decisions we have to make as a society, as a sort of political community. 
Um, and for our purposes today, because this is the Jepson Leadership Forum, um, I want to point out that the people impacted by the systems I describe in automating inequality are and should be seen as leaders in technology, ethics, algorithmic governance, and social justice. They are the parents and caregivers, the benefit recipients, the frontline workers, the real experts about the digital welfare state. So Omega Young, she was a technology leader. Angel Shepard and Patrick Grieb, they're experts on algorithmic risk assessment. And Sophie Stipe's mom, Kim, knows, perhaps better than anyone else, what are failures to be accountable for our political choices, what are failures to care for one another really cost. So this reality really demands a kind of radical solidarity moving forward. And radical solidarity requires empathy. I think this is one of the most dangerous things about these systems. So too often, when we talk about technological change and inequality, we default to a kind of future-focused abstraction. There's a lot of mights and coulds and shoulds and woulds. Um, what might happen if robots take all our jobs? Um, what could happen if a criminal justice AI became self-aware? And these kinds of hypotheticals make for really good science fiction, um, but they make for horrible social policy, really terrible social policy. Real harms, life-threatening, family-shattering, human rights-violating harms are happening to real people right now. And we have to start the shared work of securing a more just technological present with those most impacted by these kinds of digital changes that are already underway. So for models of this solidarity, which I think can be difficult to imagine, we can take a lesson from the last few years of tech worker actions, um, which are premised on the idea that the category of tech worker includes not just computer scientists and engineers, but everyone in the industry, from engineers to warehouse pickers, rideshare drivers, and service employees. And in fact, the great majority of tech worker actions, something like 57% of them, um, taken between 2006 and 2019 were led by precarious workers, not white collar workers. They're the ones who are most impacted. They are the most innovative and fearless leaders. They have the most at stake and they have the most skin in the game. So what does it mean to be truly in solidarity with those whose human rights, whose very lives are being so profoundly shaped by the kind of digital tools and algorithmic pra practices um, I, I describe in automating inequality. Like how will you all be accountable to the memory of Omega Young, to Angel and Patrick, to the get along shirt, to Kim Stipes? So my greatest fear is that by acting as empathy overrides, the tools I describe in automating inequality radically limit our political vision and they absolve us of a responsibility that we have to care for each other. Um, and I wrote the book because we can do better and we deserve better. Our communities deserve better. The designers of all the systems I studied when I was um, researching this book agreed on one thing, that data analytics, matching algorithms, and automating decision making are perhaps regrettable, but they're necessary systems of triage, doing a kind of digital triage that helps decide whose life is immediately threatened by economic inequality and who can wait. But one of the things I try to remind people in the book is that the decision to triage at all is a political decision. It's a political choice. 
And actually to use the language of triage is very misleading because triage is really only appropriate for um, uh, short-term disasters where there is more help coming. If, it is a, if, if the disaster is not short-term, if there are not more resources coming, then what we're doing is not digital triage, uh, it's automated rationing. And I think we need to speak about it in those terms and really understand what it means to accept a kind of digital rationing um, among the country's most vulnerable families. So the fundamental danger of the digital poorhouse, I believe, is that it requires that we think small, that we sort of accede to arbitrarily impose limits both to our resources and to our vision. And this political moment that we're in um, and justice itself really requires that we think big, that we push back against austerity fever. Um, so what do we do? Uh, often when I do these talks, I get a strong sense that people want me to give out like a five-point plan for building better technology. Yeah, somebody wrote that down on a card already, didn't you? Um, and uh, my uh, general response to that is, um, uh, I'm sorry and you're welcome, but I'm not going to do that. Um, this work is much bigger work um, than tinkering with technology, um, but I do think there, we're, there, there are a number of things we can do immediately um, so to make real change in economic inequality um, possible. The first thing is a kind of a cultural work, which is to tell more um, accurate uh, stories about poverty. So in the United States, we have a very crazy story about poverty, that it is um, an aberration, that it only happens to a tiny percentage of probably pathological people. Um, and this is why these ideas of digital diagnostic tools of who is worth helping and who is not make sense. The reality though, um, if you look at, for example, Mark Rank's life cycle work on poverty is that 51% um, of Americans will be below the poverty line at some point in their adult life between the ages of 20 and 64. And a full 64% of us, almost a full two-thirds of us, will receive means-tested public assistance. So that's not Social Security, that's not reduced-price school lunches, that's straight welfare. Two-thirds of us, I'll just say it again because this is so like counter the story we hear, two-thirds of us will be on welfare at some point in our adult lives between the ages of 20 and 64. Um, so if poverty is not an aberration but the majority experience in the United States, then these um, increasingly sophisticated resource intensive tools for deciding who deserves help and who doesn't, who is truly patho pathological and who's just had bad luck, they make no sense at all. Um, and we can re-shift um, some of that energy towards building that universal floor that we need under everyone since this is a majority condition. I just wanna say it's important to note that it is a majority condition does not mean we are all equally um, vulnerable to poverty. Um, if you were born poor, if you're caring for other people, if you have a mental health issue, if you have a physical disability, if you're a person of color, if you don't have legal status, all of those things uh, make it much more likely that you'll be poor and it's much harder um, to escape poverty um, once you're there. But the majority of poverty in the United States is episodic, not long-term. I think if we can change the story, which requires telling each other different stories about our own lives, um, and I can 
tell one about me if you want me to during the Q&A. Um, then I believe we can shift the politics. We can move away from these means-tested, punitive public programs, spend so much time, so much effort, so much, so the energy of so many smart people um, deciding who deserves help and shift instead to an approach based on uh, universal human rights. So we can decide as a country, as a political community, at any time that there's a line below, below which no one is allowed to go for any reason. We can say, for example, no one in one of the richest countries in the world goes hungry. We can say no one in the United States lives in a tent on the sidewalk for 10 years. We can say no family in the United States should be split up because a parent can't afford a child's medication. In other places in the world, these conditions are quickly recognized as human rights violations. Here, we tend to think of them increasingly as systems engineering problems. And I think that should give us deep pause about the state of our national soul, about who we think we are as a people, and about our responsibility to care for each other. Finally, as we work out this not small work of changing the story around poverty and changing the politics around poverty reduction, we need to design less harmful technology. And one of the ways I um, describe some first steps in doing that is that we have a tendency to think about um, designing technology to be fair and just as designing it to be objective and neutral. This seems intuitively correct, but in reality is, is like crazy pants. Um, so let me give you a, like a metaphor, a, a concrete metaphor to show you why. So say you're trying to build a vehicle um, that will be able to navigate a very hilly, twisty, uh, and turning landscape. Like, let's say it looks like San Francisco, right? Big hills, big turns. And you say, okay, we want the best possible tool to deal with this very unequal, very um, uh, riven landscape. And you say, uh, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna build it in neutral. I'm not gonna get it, give it any gears. Right? And then you put it on top of Telegraph Hill and you like Flintstones your foot out the door because you don't have any gears. Um, and you push off and then somehow you're surprised when the car crashes at the bottom of Telegraph Hill and bursts into a, like a flaming ball um, of horror. The reality is um, building a tool in neutral, building a tool with no gears to actually navigate the landscape of inequality on which we live is building it to support the status quo in which we live. And if we want different tools, if we want to build for a more just world, we have to do it on purpose. We have to build equity gears into these tools from the beginning every single time. And that means efficiency is important, of course, and cost savings are important, of course, but they must be balanced with our other collective political goals. Self-determination, dignity, fairness, due process, and equity. So if we're to have a more just future, we have to build it on purpose, bite by bite, brick by brick. And if we outsource our moral responsibility to care for each other, to computers, we really have no one but ourselves to blame when these systems supercharge discrimination and automate austerity. I'm so grateful for your attention tonight. Really looking forward to answering uh, some questions. And thank you um, for being here. Thanks so much. Thank you.
I think we have an official question reader. We do. So there are some cards coming up to me now, but I'm going to start with one so that we don't leave you in silence. So we've been hearing in some of these previous forums about ways in which systems are already in place. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how we might be able to work within these existing systems that are clearly problematic uh, in making decisions about how to get out of the problems that they've created. Mm. Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. And it's one that I struggle with a lot. I, one of the things that I've realized, uh, and this isn't the answer for everyone, this is really a personal answer. One of the things I've realized over the time that I've spent the sort of the last two years talking about this book in public um, is that I have a very sort of specific um, theory of change. Um, and my theory of change is very much like power concedes nothing without a demand. Um, and I'm not convinced that the momentum and the smarts um, to solve these problems is necessarily going to come from within the tech community or even within the policy community. Um, I really do mean it when I say the leaders of this work need to be Kim Stipes and um, Angel and Patrick and um, uh, Omega Young's family um, because I think there's a way that we have um, built many of these tools and built many of our policies from the perspective of professional middle class people and they just don't um, make sense in poor and working class communities. Um, for example, the idea of opting out, uh, like giving people good information to be able to choose to opt in or opt out of a digital system, like that's a great solution for a professional middle class person who doesn't rely on the system for the basic, for their, to meet their basic needs. Um, but I think it's really hard to say, like in the case of Los Angeles, that filling out this incredibly invasive survey called the VI Spadat um, in order to um, try to get a slightly higher lottery number for housing, it's hard to say that's truly voluntary because your other choice is not ever to get any housing. So I think this idea that people have the power and the agency um, to opt in or opt out and all they need is like better or clear information doesn't make sense in many of the worlds in which I report and work. Um, and so I really do think there's a pretty profound shift of, that needs to happen around who the, how people see experts in this field um, and who's in the room when design decisions and policy decisions get made. Thank you. Uh, so this uh, particular question asks a little bit twist the, the lens away specifically from poverty and says, what are your thoughts on feminist design thinking, um, which is being used to make hiring algorithms less discriminato discriminatory, and how might it be applied in this context? Hmm. So um, does anyone want to see, I, I answer people, not questions. Um, does anyone want to fess up to like that question being theirs? <laughs> Yay, hi. <laughs> it's nice to meet you. Thank you for that question. Um, you know, so I think that there's a wide variety of feminist perspectives on technology. I think that on the end of the work that I find myself less aligned with, it tends to be around pipeline issues, right? So how do we get women into these powerful positions where they can make a lot of money? And that's like important, but it's not my feminism. Um, I am more interested in the brand of feminism that came, for example, out of the welfare rights movement in this country. Um, and so I, um, my impression is that some of the really smart feminist techno, techno science criticism hasn't quite 
made that connection yet, or at least I haven't seen much around the sort of public service issues um, that I feel really, really excited about. But I think um, it's not an accident at all that the majority of people I spoke to who were impacted by these systems were women um, or caregivers of some kind, um, even if they were men. Um, and I, I think it is absolutely a feminist issue and I'm excited to work with other feminist critics of, of technoscience um, to deepen the class analysis that needs to go along with that. Yeah, so thanks for that. You don't have to admit, that was very brave admit. Um, you don't have to admit if you don't want to, but I do like to like look at you in the face when I answer your question, so it's just, it's just me. Uh, our next question first says thank you, uh, and then says, are you aware of any state that is actually doing it right? Uh, that's a great question. Who, anybody wanna fess up to this one? Oh, hey. Um, so states, not so much, um, and unfortunately my work has gone on um, since this book, I've been working a lot around um, debt, um, particularly around what I see as predatory debt collection um, of supposed um, overpayments of public services as much as 30 years in the past. So people are getting these letters across the country that say like, oops, we accidentally overpaid you food stamps in 1986. Um, you owe us $1,500. Um, you can either pay us the, to the total now, set up a payment plan, prove to us that you don't owe this money um, or we're gonna send this debt to the federal government and they're gonna um, keep money from your federal tax refund or your social security check or your veterans benefits um, until this debt is paid off. Um, and that um, is something that has been happening other places around the world like Australia has a very famous um, set of cases that they call robo debt that's very similar um, but seems to be happening in the United States as well. Um, so unfortunately, I can't say that I am, I know there's a lot of, I mean, this goes back to this uh, slide, there's a lot of really well-intentioned people trying really hard to do good work. Um, and I'd say all, like all the designers I spoke to were super smart people who care deeply about the people their programs serve. Um, and so in this case, it's really not about intention so much uh, as it is about recognizing this, the, the deep social programming of these systems, like how grounded they are in things like the, I, the digital poorhouse, um, and just recognizing how hard the work is gonna be. So some of the folks who I think are doing it right um, are sort of local organizations, um, like there's one in Chicago called M Relief that explicitly has a welfare rights framework to their work. They, um, one of the things they've done is create a mobile app um, that helps you apply for CalFresh, which is California's um, SNAP or food stamps program. Um, and one of the things that's so interesting about their work is because they center the value of dignity and self-determination, one of the things, one of the things that's scariest about applying for food stamps, if no one else in the room has applied for food stamps, but some of us have. Um, again, this is one of those stories, right? Everybody's like, no, it wasn't me. And then they're like, yeah, I totally was on food stamps. Um, one of the scariest things about applying for food stamps, particularly online, is you fill out the thing, you fill out a page and you have to fill out the whole page before you can hit the arrow to go to the next page. And like 28 pages later, you've given them like how many refrigerators there are in your house and you know what your second cousin's first name is and right, like all of this really intense information. And then there's just like a big green button that's like, send this all to the state. And at that point, you don't even know if you're gonna be eligible, right? You're just like, 
kind of Hail Mary passing all of your information um, off to the state. Um, and what uh, Emmerleaf has done is say like, that, is, that we should not ask people to be doing that. Like we should at least let them know if they're eligible before they release all this information um, about themselves. And so part of the thing that, the, the app does many things, but one of the things the app does is it acts as like a third party data holder, like a broker. Um, so they hold on to your data um, they then ping the system that you're trying to see if you can get benefits from. Uh, turns around and says, okay, look, it looks like you're gonna be eligible for this. Do you want us to release your data? Um, and that's actually really, it's like a simple thing, but it says really profound things about where their values are. Their values are you shouldn't have, because you're on public assistance doesn't mean your whole book, your whole life should be an open book right, to everyone, like that is a basic um, violation of your dignity and your self-determination. Uh, it does lots of other stuff, but those kinds of systems I'm really excited about. There's another one in Baltimore called Host Home, um, which also is looking to try to match trans unhoused people with housing in private homes and with funders to defray the cost of that housing. Again, it comes from this very specific point of view though, that like the shelter system is not serving um, gender non-conforming people because most shelters are gender differentiated and struggle um, around that, right? So again, it's about leading with those, those, those deep values. And when I see organizations, or if I see a state doing that, I'm excited about it. Um, as of yet, I haven't found that state yet. But if somebody else knows, um, I'd be thrilled to be wrong. Yeah. Thank you. So our next question's related a little bit. It asks how you build an equitable technological program that isn't objective and neutral without accidentally profiling in the opposite direction. So that's one of those super abstract problems, abstract questions that all, wait, so somebody wanna, uh, somebody wanna fess up to this? Hi, nice to meet you, thank you. You're the, you're the question writer, so I really appreciate you. That's, um, it's, that's a tricky one, right? Because it calls for, um, it calls for an abstract solution without knowing what the landscape of the problem is, right? So I feel much more comfortable, and this is actually like a big part of my work, saying I don't know that there are abstract solutions to any of these problems. But I do know, for example, in Los Angeles, that when you require people to answer questions like have you currently, um, have you recently traded sex for money or drugs, that you need to make sure that the police don't have access to that information, which is currently true in Los Angeles, um, right? So I feel, I feel like much more comfortable in the practical realities. And I think we can do that earlier, right? I think we can do that in the design process. But what that requires is actually like a really deep knowledge of the policy area that most designers are asked to work in. And that's not something we ask them to do very often. Like we ask them to be really smart at Python or really smart at whatever it is they're building the tool in. Um, but then we give them no information about like the history of social assistance in the United States. And then bless them, like, they're like, oh my God, I, this happens to me all the time. I end a talk like this, some wonderful little young engineer walks up to me and is like, oh, I'm working on this project and I feel like the devil now and oh my God, what am I gonna do? Um, and I always say like, look, you're a unicorn, like you care about the impact your work is having and you have these really unique skills. Um, and so what you need to do is surround yourself with really good people who will help keep you accountable to something besides professional development, though that's also important. Um, and you need to learn the people that your tool is gonna affect and you need to put yourself in service to those people. Um, and I think that's something that we don't 
often do in engineering education or even in the professional development of computer scientists and, and computer and, and engineers. Yeah, so that's a great question, thank you. But it's a hard one to answer abstractly. It's like C, 14. <laughs> um, but the work is really hard, the work, or we would have gotten it by now, yeah. So this next question, I think, comes back to the austerity part of things. How do we overcome the American ethos of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and the prosperity gospel? Oh my, you guys are just asking the easy questions all night long. Um, does someone want to fess up to the prosperity gospel question? Hey, hi, nice to meet you. Um, you know, again, it's an incredibly difficult question. Um, I believe, um, and I follow an, um, a network of organizations that I've been part of. I was a welfare rights organizer for 15 years, and this is obviously really has an impact on how I see these problems. Um, and we were part of a network called the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, based out of Kensington in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Um, and one of the things that I really love about the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign is that they redefine poverty. Um, so we define poverty in the United States in a really super sort of dumb way, that it's like this very arbitrary point in the income scale. If you're a dollar over, you're no longer poor. If you're a dollar under, you're poor. Like it just, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, it, it, it doesn't um, take into account, it's still based on the cost of food being the highest um, expense in a household, which is crazy, it doesn't make sense anymore. Like it's now it's childcare it's housing. Um, it doesn't change from region to region, so you're just, you're poor in New York City at $11,000, you're poor in, um, you know, in Troy, New York, where I live at $11,000, those are not the same thing at all, right? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so what the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign has done as part of an attempt to see, to help people see shared struggle um, is to define poverty as lacking any one of the economic human rights that we are promised by the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. So that includes, that includes um, healthcare, um, that includes a safe job at a fair um, wage of pay, um, that includes food, shelter, um, affordable housing, basic social services to meet our needs, that includes like communication in order to um, uh, to achieve those rights, it includes family unity and sort of, or family um, uh, pr protection, protection of families, particularly mothers and children. Um, and they say, look, if you if you are lacking any one of these things, you're poor. And like, welcome to a very big and very awesome club. Um, so, part of what I see my work as doing that really goes sort of counter the narrative of the prosperity gospel, which is like. If you're rich, it's because you're really good, and if you're poor, it's because you're really bad, um, or you've made bad choices, or however you want to, um, however you want to put it, um, is to say that like all the basic human emotions and activities and behaviors are roughly the same across classes. So now, sorry, live streamers, I'm, I'm gonna. And I'm in the South too, so I'm going to curse just very lightly. Um, I believe that there's like uh, an equal distribution of shitty people, like across the class spectrum, um, and like an equally um, equal distribution of heroes across the class spectrum. Um, so I really, um, I think this idea that poverty is rooted in moral moral choices is really dangerous. Um, part of what I see as part of my work is to share my own story and to help people who are struggling and really stigmatized, um, really isolating, 
um, really punitive systems see that they're not alone. And in fact, there's just tons of people around them who they're not just not talking to who have had the same experience. Um, and so I think that's part of the work. I think telling our stories is part of the work. Um, and I think if it's true that the majority of us have been on public assistance at some point in our life, that is not the national narrative, right? And we need to start telling our stories immediately um, in order to get to a better system that doesn't see poverty as a moral failing. Yeah, thanks for that. And related, a uh, question about where a universal basic income might fit yeah, into this yeah. model. People, angry, uh, Andrew Yang has helped us here. Um, anyone want to fess up to the UBI? Uh, hi, nice to meet you. Um, so I say in the book that I don't think a UBI would solve poverty, depending on the plan. Um, but it may, may very well help dismantle the digital poorhouse because the digital poorhouse is all about making that diagnostic, doing that moral calculus of do you deserve this or not? And the universalism of something like a universal basic income just frees us from having to do that moral math, um, which I think is a huge waste of time, energy, and resources. Um, so uh, I think the devil is really in the details of UBI plans. And I always remind people that the one, his, one moment in history where we almost got a universal basic income, anyone want to share what administration that was? Nixon, that's right. Um, so the family assistance plan under Nixon, um, which we have to say clearly was not because Nixon was like, I want everybody to have a universal basic income. It's because the national welfare rights movement was pushing a much more generous, much less punitive universal basic income. The devil's in the details. It matters, like, do we still get other kinds of social services? It matters, do you force people um, to work below minimum wage? It matters how much it is, right? It, it matters, all the conditions on it matter. Um, I think at worst, UBIs can be sort of a neoliberal, like, we're giving you money, like, you're, it's not our problem anymore, and like, it's a reason to just shred the rest of the safety net. At best, like the National Welfare Rights Organization's plan in the 70s, um, it can actually be something that removes the moral stigma from um, public assistance um, and makes it possible for families to survive and thrive. There's a really interesting um, experiment happening right now in Jackson, Mississippi, um, through an organization called Springboard to Opportunities right now that is giving $1,000 cash um, to, to solely to African-American moms um, in Jackson with no strings attached at all, and it has no effect on their other benefits. And I'll be really interested to see what happens there. It's a small pilot now, but but we'll see, and it's worth following for people who are interested in UBIs. It's a great question, thanks. So I think we have time for one more. Um, I'm gonna try and make it a little bit more positive. Great. <laughs> uh, UBI's positive. <laughs> I mean, sure, but. Um, so asking who else is working on this besides you. Uh, so who are the people beyond you, it actually says that, uh, who are the disruptors questioning the relationship of technology and poverty? And is, uh, so is the philanthropy community, for instance, working inside this space? Yeah, yeah, so there are um, a lot of individuals and grassroots organizations who are doing the work um, as scholars, as writers, as organizers um, that I really admire. So um, some of the other writers I really admire, uh, Ruha Benjamin um, uh, has a new book out called Race After Technology um, that's really extraordinary. Sophia Nobles 
um, great work, uh, Algorithms of Oppression. Um, but there's just been this incredible flowering of books in this area just in the last two years. Um, so definitely, if you're interested in this, like you can, um, I mean, don't go to Amazon, but you can go to Amazon and like endlessly have their algorithm produce books about the horrors of algorithms, which is really interesting. Um, so there's a lot of good stuff to read out there. Um, I was also really honored to work for many years as a member of a team um, called the Our Data Bodies Project. And the Our Data Bodies Project worked in three cities, in Charlotte, North Carolina, in um, Detroit, Michigan, and in Los Angeles, um, California, um, to work with directly impacted people to sort of develop um, self-defense strategies in their communities. So we put out a playbook, a, um, a sort of digital self-defense playbook um, that I'm really proud of and that is in pretty wide use. Um, if you're looking, oh, and that, I, I wanna just name my collaborators on, on that project because they're amazing people. So Sita Pena Gangadaran in London, uh, Tawana Petty in Detroit, uh, Tamika Lewis in Charlotte, and Maria Saba in Los Angeles. Um, there are also organizations where folks who are interested in this work gather, including the Allied Media Conference in Detroit every year is a really good place to look at this work. Um, so there's been a lot of sort of um, design for social justice work coming out of movements that I think is really exciting. Um, and there are some think tanks also sort of pondering these kind of issues. Um, Data and Society in New York, uh, AI Now, Artificial Intelligence Now, um, New America where I was a fellow for a while um, that also support I think really critical, smart thinking and action around these things. So there's a lot of folks um, working in the space and that's really, that's super exciting. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great night. <laughs>